Welcome back to the second episode of Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today I will be joined by the legendary Twitter user, Nightmare Vision. We will be discussing the conservative meltdown over the coronavirus, doomers wanting to shut down the economy entirely, the extremely online left-wing Catholic phenomenon, and why American liberal women are going crazy over Spanish fascists. Talk about a nightmare vision. Let's begin. Many conservatives want you to sacrifice your life to keep Applebee's open. Yes, it's true. Almost every big-name conservative on cable news and Twitter has repeated some variation of the line that we must accept thousands of deaths to get that big line on the stock market up. It's like World War II, but instead of braving machine gun turrets, we're getting wasted by a disease. And instead of fighting to keep our country free of enemy invasion, we're risking our lives to keep Target afloat. Such a noble mission. But conservatives insist we must do this. Some have even offered their own lives on behalf of our economic engine. Glenn Beck is one of these noble volunteers. He said this, I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working, even if we all get, all get sick. I'd rather die than kill the country. Radio host Jesse Kelly tweeted, without any trace of irony, if given the choice between dying and plunging the country I love into a Great Depression, I'd happily die. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick told Tucker Carlson that grandparents like himself are ready to sacrifice their lives to save the economy. Blexit founder Candace Owens negatively compared our current generation to the World War II generation. In her tweet, she claimed the WW2 generation cried, we will die before we give up our freedom, while this generation squeaks, we will give up every single one of our freedoms before we risk dying. She claimed this is cowardice dressed up as nobility. Always have to hate on millennials, even when you are a millennial yourself. It's also kind of weird that she wants to kill all the greatest generation members. But that's not even our grandparents anymore. The youngest World War II vet would be around 92 years old. Our grandparents are actually silent generation and boomers. They're not the World War II generation. Needless to say, wanting to kill grandma so your stock portfolio improves is a pretty insane view. This might be the worst political messaging I can ever recall. Yet it's being repeated ad nauseum by conservatives. It's almost like some central control plant sent out the same talking points to all these people. Weird. We all know the economy is getting beat up right now. And our government needs to get us working again. That doesn't mean we need to exterminate the silent generation. This topic is too much for one man to handle. I'm excited to welcome Highly Respected's first ever guest. Cue the music. All right, joining me to discuss this and other important issues today is Nightmare Vision. It's hello, true. Hello. He is actually an owl and has lived in the forests of New England for hundreds of years, haunting the minds of liberal women for generations. So when you see his owl, Avi, that is not a fake persona. That's really him. So sorry to dox him, but I had to reveal it to our listeners. That's anyway, okay. he tweets at the handle, God Close My Eyes. Nightmare, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I can't believe that I had to clarify that. I thought all of that uh, biographical information was just clear about me from my Twitter profile. Um, he's an so ancient, powerful being, and he finds the yeah. time to post a lot of great content on Twitter. So we're happy to have him on Twitter and on this program today. Thank so you, uh, first question, Nightmare. Why do conservatives want to sacrifice granny for the big line? Do you think this is like some deep neurosis conservatives have? Uh, yeah, it's been very interesting uh, to see the, the I feel like clearly coordinated conservative reaction to the spread of the virus or rather how, how Trump should be reacting to the spread of the virus, right? Like I think that 
Um, I don't know what degree of influence they have over the Trump administration, but it's clear that like a lot of these big personalities were, um, they're intentionally spreading, they're like staying on message, so to speak, when it comes to talking about like whether the economy should take precedence over uh, treating this as like a serious pandemic and viral plague. But in another way, another interesting aspect of this is that this is kind of very standard conservative politics from a certain angle. And what I mean by that is that um, what you have are, you know, talk radio hosts and, you know, big uh, Twitter, social media presences like, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro and, and uh, you know, Matt Walsh. And they're all, uh, you know, Glenn Beck, comically enough, talking about how, you know, we need to do everything we can to to fix the economy and to prevent the economy from from crashing. And what they want you to think when they say the economy is the, you know, mom and pop store, so to speak. It's kind of like yeah. at this point, it's a mythical construct in a lot of ways. And that if we, you know, take enough precautions, which I guess is possible. I'm not I'm not even disputing that, that like small businesses would suffer and people would eventually, uh, you know, in this country, we would experience basically a depression and the fallout from that could be even materially worse than a, you know, a pandemic. And I, I don't think like, I think that by itself, that's like a reasonable argument. That's not something that's far fetched, but what makes it so standard for like the conservative Republican playbook is that the skepticism toward the economy doesn't really materialize in, in that fashion. And they're trying to misdirect it in that way, um, which is similar to, to how conservative politics and, and Republican politics normally proceed. Um, so they're really defending, you know, large businesses, multinational corporations, but they're doing it under the veneer of, you know, defending the mom and pop shop down the street. And so everybody kind of suspects this at this point, right? That like, when we talk about bailing out businesses, and when we talk about fixing the economy, from the perspective of Washington, D.C., that means, you know, trillions of dollars, like, clandestinely being funneled into the accounts of, like, Boeing or Wall Street hedge funds or, you know, like, Amazon and, like, yeah. Jeff Bezos and something like that. And so we got to save Delta, too. We got to save the airlines. Yeah, exactly. And so, but what they want you to uh, believe is that this is, when we're talking about the economy, we're talking about, like, the average Joe who who might not be able to make rent or something like that. And this is this is kind of the standard conservative playbook for decades now where their rhetoric is about this kind of like heartland America and you know defending the little guy uh, all under the guise of you know economic uh, uh, rhetoric, but it all manifests in Washington as tons, just like unfathomable uh, quantities of money um, being, poured into, uh, you know, big business, uh, you know, CEOs, and again, like Wall Street. And so this, this kind of uh, ambiguity on the, on the term economy, uh, Republicans and, and conservatives have been getting mileage out of this for a very long time. And so in, in a way, the, the pandemic is kind of just another example of that, except I would say, I guess it's a, it's a bit more dramatic. It's coming into stark relief at this point. Yeah, and a lot of conservatives were opposed to the idea of giving everyone, you know, a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars a month. It's like this is not right. You got to give it straight to businesses. We got to get the businesses afloat so they can employ people. But a lot of these businesses no longer have the power to employ people, and they need money just to survive. Like, and they're going to have to cut employees no matter what. Yet they make this argument that you don't deserve a thousand dollars a month, and that some people were even going on, "We're we're selling ourselves into slavery for a thousand dollars a month. This is tyranny. Like we rose up for much less against the British, you know." And th there's like this uh, hyperbolic rhetoric going on. I mean, they and, and it's like very funny that um, the only references they can think of is World War II here. Everything comes back to World War II. It's like this response has to be like, we're all storming Iwo Jima, but instead we're all going to Walmart and TGI Fridays just to keep the economy going. And, you know, if you start coughing and grandma dies, well, that's just the necessary cost. It's like your, uh, it's like your buddy storming the beach. You know, if he gets shot down, we're doing this for America. You know, if you're eating at TGI Fridays or Applebee's 
and you all get sick and die, well, that's just the necessary cost to get the big lineup. And, you know, you it's not. Service. Yeah, and they make it like this dramatic thing, you know, and some of these people are even willing to sacrifice their own lives, like Jesse Kelly and others, you know, it's like, what? Come on, man. Like, this is, uh, do you have any hint of self-awareness? This makes you look ridiculous. This is just terrible political messaging. I mean, there is like, I, I sympathize with the argument that we have to get the economy moving again. Otherwise, you know, we could be in the middle of another Great Depression. Uh, we cannot go under quarantine for you know, probably another two months or something like that. I think at, we really do need to have this conversation probably around mid to late April, um, you know, yes. about how we have to get it. I mean, we might not be able to just be how the virus is going, but, um, you know, <laughs> the, the, we've only had one week of quarantine. Like we shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. having this conversation up until like, uh, maybe April. And like, I think it's appropriate time, uh, after Easter, but, you know, it's only been one week. You know, Italy. Oh, look, Scott. <laughs> yeah. This is all. This is all because the they got tired of telling troops thank you for your service when they would go to Applebee's and Chili's, and now the troops are going to have to stand up when they see you at Applebee's, and That's they're going to have to thank I, you. I want my salute. Service. It's like yes, I am. I am coughing everywhere, but I am helping the economy right now. <laughs> respect my respect my service I and mean, a, like, a whole line of marines just saluting the domino's <laughs> pizza delivery guy it's like thank you for keeping this economy running <laughs> and, and it, it's so um you know it's so it's so crass to just imagine that this is all done to help out like the big executives and we're having to bail out companies that everyone hates again like like boeing and all these companies that are part of the military industrial complex and yes. Well, at the same time, people were mad about UBI, but you could just say that this is a bailout for America. We bailed out the corporations in 2008, and now we're bailing out American, like, you know, normal Americans. Um, but they're, they're just such an upset. They're, everything has to be about the economy with a lot of these conservatives. I mean, you know, when they talk about tax breaks and regulations, it all becomes back to an economic philosophy. And liberalism succeeds... Uh, much more so than conservatism in America because it's not so much obsessed with the economy. Like in everything, and even when they talk about economics, it's always a moral issue. It's like, well, we need to help people. Well, we need to tax people so we can give people what they need to survive. Well, conservatives, it's all about like how we're getting the stock market up. It's like profits, economic growth. It's these abstract concepts that a lot of people can't relate to on a normal basis. Well, liberals yes. always use the moral arguments and they're primarily, you know, everything is, it all relates to their social and cultural concerns or their primary concerns rather than just the economic ones. And like right now, this is like the most crass economic concern is that we must all die for the economy. Now, if it was for like a greater cause is like um, saying that, you know, if we don't get the economy going again, you're going to have a horrible quality of life in like a year, like you'll be permanently unemployed, et cetera, et cetera, if they did that. But they don't even they're not even smart enough to use these arguments. It's all just, um, you know, the stock market is bad. Uh, our 401ks are shot to shit. So we need to get you to back to work. Yeah, uh, so what, do you, what do you make? Uh, what do you make of this solely economic obsession among conservatives? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way you just put it, uh, because I think that despite the disagreements that, you know, uh, a lot of people, uh, I'm assuming in the audience uh, listening to this have with liberalism, the idea that their economic arguments are in service to a broader kind of moral, social, cultural agenda, I think that that's normal. That's a much more normal way of viewing uh, economic issues that in other words, you know, these things should be in service to a broader vision that we have now in the case of, of, of uh, Liberals, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming that, again, we, ha we happen to disagree with what that vision entails uh, But the general idea of how these things are prioritized that strikes me as, as much more sane and it probably does help contribute to their uh, overall victories in that regard, right? And so with conservatives and you know kind of libertarians these things have kind of been blended together uh since the end of the cold war right like it's it's hard to kind of parse you know conservatism libertarianism um 
there have been attempts, I'm sure you're familiar with them. There have been attempts to kind of moralize the conservative uh, fetishizing of the economy, right? Like the, they, you know, the talking about rights, talking about, you know, kind of, kind of like exaggerated examples of like the non-aggression principle and things like that. Like, the <laughs> yeah. like there have been attempts to try to moralize the language of um, economic reductionism. But the problem is that they appeal to basically nobody except like a small slice of like college age, white, like policy wonk minded. Like, it's men. really just people who work in DC and work in these think tanks or they're like financially successful, um, you know, people who are, you know, involved in corporate law or finance or something like that. And they feel that this is an ideology suited to, to their interests. I mean, it's geared to them. It's like, you deserve this success. This is morally right why you succeed. But this is like an, this is a weird demographic. I mean, most people who are financially successful don't even think that way, but some do. I mean, no, that, that's, Ayn that's Rand true. had many followers among the financial elite. <laughs> and they were just interested in theory. This, this, this had nothing to do with self-interest, right? This is yeah. just all about abs <laughs> abstract, yeah. abstract uh, theorizing. Um, and then the other thing you said, the conservatives talking about, you know, yeah, like the World War II generation, et cetera. I mean, that's kind of, you know, Candace Owens said something about how you know, the, the, the elderly were the World War II generation today still. And I just thought that that was kind of an odd statement to me. I don't, I don't know if that's even true anymore. Uh, as yeah, a matter of fact. Uh, yeah, I said this earlier, and, but the, the youngest World War II veteran would be 92 years old today. Uh, and that's like the youngest one. That's like somebody that like was born in like summer of 1927 and they were drafted and shipped off to um, fight at Okinawa or, I think, yeah, Okinawa was one of the last. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Okinawa was one of the final battles, but it's like sometime around then. And most of them are in their mid 90s, and there's not many of them around. I mean, most of the people are boomers and silent generation types. And I mean, uh, I mean, you know, not that many boomers uh, compared, you know, percentage wise with the greatest generation served in Vietnam. I mean, most of them were, you know, like this generation was like wanted free love, but you guys just want life or something. <laughs> uh, comparing something like that. It's like boomers were willing to go out to studio 54, but you just want to stay home and stay away from the disease. That's pathetic. You know, I don't, I don't know necessarily what the, uh, you know, the generational milestones of the current elderly would be. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the disease is, is threatens people who are at least 60. So that could be somebody who was born in 1960. Uh, that's definitely not somebody who served in World War II or even served in Vietnam. Um, yet we still have this image of the elderly as all World War II generation. Same with the young as as um, all millennials. I mean, young people are going to be millennials for another ten years. Even even after like people in college are after uh, Generation Z. I think they're called out uh, Generation Alpha. Like we're still going to be calling them millennials for. Uh, Aeons and there's millennials could be in their fifties and we're still going to be referred to the youth. Um, Even though right now millennials are in their mid thirties and they they can have kids and they still qualify as millennials. Yeah, those damn kids, you know, not wanting to take responsibility and having kids and a mortgage and stuff. Um, but the one thing I want to say is that conservatives all a lot of this economic rhetoric is saying that citizens exist to serve the economy, not the other way around. And a lot of people find that revolting. I mean, there's been much um, disgruntlement with these statements said in the media, like such as uh, Dan Patrick, the Texas lieutenant governor's statement that grandparents are willing to sacrifice themselves. Like it's just, it, I keep repeating this. It's very crass and crass rather. And it imagines, um, <laughs> we'll have a few little uh, speakos like that. Um, it imagines that we all just exist to serve the economy, not the other way around. And Trump in 2016 was able to capture the nation's imagination by saying that, no, the economy exists to serve its people, not the other way around. And conservatives are going to continue to lose. Do you think that like the coronavirus outbreak may be the death of this old timey conservatism that imagines that, you know, business uber allahs and we must all exist to serve the economy 
Well, I mean, as long as the money's flowing into propping up these personalities, think tanks and organizations, probably not. Because I mean, the I would love to say yes, but I, I hoped that that would have happened in 2016. And I'm sure you remember that there was a moment where it did feel like conservatism was basically on its way out and that we were going to see new faces and hear new voices and things like that. And that didn't <clears throat> that didn't exactly occur. So I, I don't want to um, I don't want to be too eager to pronounce the death of this this ideology. But I will say that the this uh, the, the coronavirus has kind of um, made a much more dramatic example of the problems of conservative politics. I mean, just the optics of it. I mean, you know, we're a big optics. We're a big fan of optics. Uh, oh, we on, love on optics. No, no bad optics allowed. No, no bad optics allowed. And so the optics of, you know, in 2008 and even right now, um, seeing, you know, Republicans, Democrats just uncritically hand trillions of dollars over to, you know, Boeing and other other large corporations and, and financial institutions while, you know, they they meticulously fight over every single nickel and dime that might potentially, you know, inadvertently end up in the hands of a citizen who needs it is, I can't think of anything more bad optics than that. Like it, it almost, it looks like on its face, it like justifies like some sort of revolution. I mean, it's so bad to have these people just writing checks or I guess, you know, transferring digital funds um, in like untold quantities. And then when it comes to like $1,000 or $2,000, which isn't maybe even enough for a lot of people, uh, all of a sudden the politicians are like, they, they become like just the, 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 the most, you know, uh, greedy money counters. And they just, it looks like you're prying dollars from their, we need their, a belt their dead fingers. What? We need a belt tightened at that moment. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden they're talking about, and then the conservatives come in. Remember, conservatives are completely quiet. And completely ineffective and impotent, uh, make you know regarding their ability to to even oppose or make noise about all of the money going to you know big business. But they always jump in and provide the rhetorical defense for the politicians refusing to do anything for the people. That's when it becomes like, oh, this is socialism. You're going to steal my money. Like, you know, you'll never see conservative, pol uh, uh, not politicians, but conservative personalities, you know, chiding big businesses for um, stealing people's money through like tax breaks and things like that. But when it comes to, yeah, like a potential like temporary UBI or something like that, all of a sudden the conversation shifts to like, oh, you're you're taking the bread out of, you know, Matt Walsh's son's mouth, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, in order to feed your starving child. Like, how dare you? That's socialism, sir. And you just can't, like, you can't even understand that how these people don't understand how bad that looks, which leads you to believe that, well, maybe they do, but the people paying them to talk are kind of giving them a general outline of talking points or what they want to hear from them. I know that sounds a little bit cynical, but it's it's just to illustrate the point that this looks so bad, like you said, uh, at a general level, and even in the, in the specifics we just covered that, you know, it kind of makes you suspicious about like, do they really not understand how bad this looks? So I, I just have to wonder. And I wonder too, and a lot of these financial elites don't sh even share that agreement. They say, uh, no, we cannot break the quarantine in a week or two. They told Trump that because Trump was considering this. And I think that's where a lot of that messaging came from is that Trump was considering this. And then investors like, yeah, we definitely can't do this. Don't please do not promote this idea. So this is showing that they're serving a cause that even like the people who would benefit the most realize it's a stupid idea. But I wanna move on to a different subject. At this time, we're gonna show off our radical centrist bona fides, or we might, I, Nightmare might take a t different position for me. Uh, but on, on the flip side of conservatives demanding blood for the economic God, there are many leftists and some right-wing Twitter accounts who want the economy to collapse and the quarantine to last for many months. They don't care at all about the economic effects, none whatsoever. What do you make of this? Our gracious host to, to allow me a tentative defense of the doomer position on okay. the coronavirus uh, quarantining. Not that I, look, I, th I think that um, 
acknowledging that real damage. This is the free market of ideas. We yeah. we allow dangerous <laughs> ideas here. This is the real Quillette. Exactly. I, I like you said earlier. I I don't know, like Easter or you know, two months from now. Uh, the idea that real damage can be done, I think, is sensible. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I think that's very reasonable to, to to believe, and that eventually the economy, quote unquote, won't be a reference to you know Boeing. Uh, very soon, it, it already is to a to a small extent. It will be, uh, you know, mostly referencing the average person, people unable to make rent, uh, it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just to bring up 2016 again, um, you know, when we talk about criticizing conservatives' inability to sell their economic vision under a moral rubric, Trump was able to do that pretty successfully. Um, he was able to kind of have that populist message that was the first in, in my lifetime, in our lifetime, at least successful, um, attempt to have a moral vision for the country that, uh, under which the economy was subsumed. That wasn't just like straight, um, basic liberalism or progressivism or, you know, even just democratic socialism. And it, it, it was very successful. And the, the reason I bring up 2016 was because it was kind of a moment where before you couldn't imagine something like that happening. And when you look back at it, you kind of feel like there were opportunities that arose then that were very valuable in hindsight. This kind of reminds me of that. And that's why I kind of want to stick my neck out for the Doomer position just, just a little bit, because I don't think that you know, I, I don't deny that like a prolonged quarantine could do real, real damage. And I, I don't know if anyone would deny that. But, you know, something like having a UBI would never have been entertained just like a month ago. And now we have the yeah. president of the United States. You know, he's Yang Gang temporarily. You know, he's talking to Andrew Yang and stuff like that. And, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to just be a flat UBI. I don't know what passed like just even today, the, the whole Trump bucks thing or whatever, the stimulus package. But the idea is that, you know. There are these moments where normalcy becomes suspended and people's imaginations start to branch out uh, a little bit. And I think this is one of those moments. So I don't, you know, I don't really want any real damage to, to occur. But I mean, to the extent that uh, possibilities can arise out of this scenario that, you know, I guess you maybe want to call them silver linings. I, I don't know if it takes like a global pandemic to get those <laughs> to get those yeah. rolling, but I do. I mean, I do kind of want to s support those things in a, you know, in like an um, an abstract way. And I, you know, I don't want people to actually get sick, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. You know, there is certainly a silver lining here that libertarian stupidity is being put out the pasture like nobody wants to a libertarian solution like we'll just let the free market handle it here while the free market is is begging for a bailout like this really does show how libertarianism yes. uh, doesn't work at all in a crisis and at any time when we're in a serious situation such as war pandemic or anything else you want the government to come in and intervene and solve this problem i mean we didn't rely on the free market to win world war ii and even um you know, at then, you know, there was people then who were trying to resist uh, the government's dictates of like, you have to manufacture this. There was a there's a famous photo of army soldiers carrying out an elderly uh, factory owner who was like, I don't want to solve. I don't I'm not bowing down before your dictates. So they sent in the army and they arrested him and they carried him up, carried him off in a chair. And tyranny. Like, and, yeah, <laughs> it's real tyranny. But due to those efforts, we were able to win the war. And it's the same in all these other situations. If you ever have a serious situation, you don't turn to libertarian solutions. Um, at the same time, some of these uh, folks on, I mean, this is just people on Twitter and people are posting irony and doing it for shock value. But a lot of people are like, screw small business. I hope it dies. And all these other things that like, yes, you know, we shouldn't all die for the economy, but we do have to realize we need small businesses and others. Uh, to keep the economy afloat. And if they all disappear, then it's not going to be necessarily good. But you may have a different opinion. Who do you think uh, are po politically wise and ideolog ideological wise, who benefits the most from a, an economic crisis caused by the pandemic? That's an interesting question, because I, I actually couldn't tell you particularly who benefits right now. But I, I mean, I would say that um, 
those in power definitely have the ability. And I mean, just to, just to really pile on conservatives here once more, you know, they have the Republicans, conservatives for a decade plus have been congratulating themselves on their realization that, you know, the, the Democrats have been following the Saul Alinsky uh, rules for radicals playbook. And, you know, everyone remembers on the right, uh, the mainstream right, they kind of have it seared in their memory when Rahm Emanuel, the, the uh, what, mayor of Chicago, who was yeah, mayor of Chicago. Yeah, a very integral member of the Democratic uh, machine for a very long time. He was giving an interview and he said the phrase, you never let a crisis go to waste. And, you know, I remember at the time and it's it remains even until now where conservatives and Republicans just had this like, aha, this eureka moment. Like, look, this is him admitting that, um, you know, they don't care about the country. They just want these kind of manufactured crises because they afford them, you know, Rahm Emanuel, Democrats, uh, progressives or whatever. They afford them an opportunity to entrench power. But at this point, if, if this is the case, if this is true, then. I mean, I guess, you know, I don't want to sound too, you know, Machiavellian or whatever, but at this point, if this is the case, why aren't you doing the same thing? You know what I mean? Like, why aren't you letting no crisis go to waste? If the idea is that a crisis uh, affords an opportunity to people to, you know, kind of rearrange the the, the deck chairs uh, in, in the more permanent fashion, then if every time it happens, the other guy does it successfully. Why, like, what am I supposed to do at this point? I'm just going to kind of berate you for not taking the opportunity to do it yourself, you know? So I don't know exactly who benefits um, over a long period of time. I would say that a lot of institutions may start to have their credibility, like, seriously damaged by this. Um, The media is trying to save face, uh, you know, drastically right now. And it's really, really, oh, yeah, they're trying to lie about what they were saying about the virus. Just, yeah, month, they're, they're flat out lying. Two ago. And they're, and they're denying it and ignoring it and laugh. And they were laughing at anyone who was saying that this is going to be an issue. And then they're just saying, Oh, this is all Trump's fault. Uh, there was a great tweet, um, I believe from, uh, Wesley Yang, who's kind of some, um, intellectual dark web figure, I believe. I'm not, um, I see he's published by like Washington Examiner and Quillette and stuff, but he had this great tweet about showing all these New York officials like in February and March, including de Blasio saying like, go out and have fun, show that like coronavirus will not impact you. And all these same people are blaming Trump for everything, but all the, the level of incompetence and disregard for this crisis was at every level of government. There was no Democrat who was in like late January or early February who was saying this is gonna be a serious crisis. Uh, every outlet was telling you that the flu is a bigger threat. And yet at this time, it, it's it's all gotta be Trump's fault. So yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, and I don't even think people are believing it because I mean, Trump's approval rating uh, for handling the crisis is at 60% right now. And the media is like so mad about it they're, that they're not gonna show his press conferences anymore. It's, it's, um, you know, it is difficult to say who's going to benefit from the crisis. And a lot of people think that it's, you know, not good optics, so to speak, to even contemplate this. But we are an election year and this will have some uh, impact on the election. Whether what what it is going to be the effect, uh, it's unclear at this moment. I don't think Biden is the right candidate to run. I do think right now, right now, Joe Biden, I I have to say this. He looks he already did to an extent, but he has never looked more irrelevant as a public figure than he does now. I mean, in many ways, you can say that as of now, the election is Donald Trump versus coronavirus, not Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, you know? He's like a yo-yo, Jack. You know, it's like, I love like <laughs> that they have to bring out Biden. And he's like, he thinks he's like doing like a pre-recorded interview. He's like, oh, just stop it. And then like all the interviewers are like beaming, like they're so fake. They're like, oh, this is so normal. Where he's like, what am, who am I talking to again? Uh, where am I? It's like, oh, Joe, that's really funny. <laughs> this is so normal presidential. Uh, I mean, they're just going to have to lie about Joe Biden's mental state. I mean, Joe Biden is ter- is terrible candidate to run. I don't know how much better Bernie would be. I mean, Bernie has his mental faculties. 
uh, mostly together. And he would be having a, a better message than Biden. I mean, Biden can't even do a TV interview without it turning into an embarrassment. Uh, and then he can't even do a lot of pre-recorded uh, video interview, um, you know, or video message, so to speak, without it going haywire. So Biden does not present like somebody you want in charge during a crisis because he can't even remember where he is. No. And I think no. Trump, Trump will benefit from that. And it, it, his approval ratings are, are so far so good. The main issue is going to be is going to be the economic effects and whether they will still last until fall and people turn on him in that regard. But I don't know if Biden will necessarily make that message because, uh, I mean, their strategy is basically keep Biden away from the public eye for so long and that Trump just implodes. And they tried this in 2016 with Hillary. I mean, Hillary was not in great health and was unlike, I mean, Biden is at least likable, uh, but she was not in great health. She couldn't campaign as much as Trump. And they just hit her the whole time, didn't send her out to states she needed to campaign in, and she lost. And I think we're gonna see that again in this year. I mean, if they make campaign, if they make, Biden campaign heavily. I'm pretty sure he's going to have a health uh, issue and <laughs> he might be incap incapacitated by the time of the election, but we'll have to see um, who this benefits. But we're going to switch from coronavirus to a different topic, but on to the presidential election and Joe Biden's uh, chief opponent who's still in the race, Bernie Sanders, and he has a unique um, support block that I don't think is that big, but a lot of journalists and people on Twitter care a lot about. I want to talk about the extremely online left-wing Catholics. A month ago, the Washington Examiner published an article on the traditionalist Catholic Bernie bros. The paper interviewed four people, two of whom are extremely online posters, which I'm pretty sure Nightmare is uh, familiar with. It's uh, um, Kevin Gallagher and Zach Mabry. Zach Mabry, I think, was in Little Rascals. Um, yes. And, and that's like, he still looks like a kid, even though I think he's like older than me. Um, <laughs> but they decided that this is a major trend. The main interview subject was somebody different. It was a self-declared member of the Democratic Socialists of America pro-life caucus, and he must be the only member, who carried a sign at the March for Life you know, two months ago that said, Medicare for all, abortion for none. The article claims this is a real trend of traditionalist Catholic Bernie bros, and they make up a not insignificant part of Bernie's base. But they relied on zero data to support this point. So Nightmare, why do you think these left Caths support a candidate who says abortion is healthcare and also says pro-lifers have no place in the Democratic Party? Uh, it's, it's a very interesting question and it does, it, it has a history to it. So I'll just briefly kind of give an outline of, of where I think this phenomena comes from. I think that you can kind of see leftist Catholics as almost the cousins of their similar aged right wing counterparts. And what I mean by that is that all of these groups grew up in a you know, post-Vatican II Catholic world where you had essentially two groups. You had, you know, garden variety liberal Catholics, and then you had the more uh, orthodox Catholics in American life who basically decided to get into bed with conservatism and uh, re the Republican Party kind of through Republican politics. And, you know, they have numbers, but as an intellectual exercise, nobody respects liberal Catholicism, right? Like the kind of idea of, uh, you know, like Susan from the parish council, um, just, you know, engaging in like normal Democrat politics for like Hillary Clinton. And like Nancy Pelosi yeah, and yeah. Joe Biden are actually, and the Kennedy family are kind of like the epitome of that. But that is really an older generation group that's yes, um, and so, no longer really around that much anymore. Yeah, they, they, they really aren't. Most most people have on on both sides the people who are who end up becoming more Catholic and less Catholic. In a way, they've both realized that there, there really can't be a this kind of uh, very basic version of of liberal Catholicism, right? Like, yeah, the kind of JFK Nancy Pelosi version. And so, a lot of Catholics started to have to search for what they how they wanted to present 
their beliefs or what they actually did believe in the wake of the dominance of this kind of conservative alliance with Catholicism. And so I don't know if you know people in your audience are familiar, but you had magazines like First Things, which were um, founded by it was, actually First Things was founded by a priest, Richard John Newhouse, who and in he a was lot of Lutheran ways, at the time when it was founded. Yes, yes, he was. And um, he, in a way, rep represented in his person, uh, in his intellectual work, this kind of um, bridging between, you know, I guess you want to call it classical liberalism. So to, to distinguish it from the, you know, the kind of like post 1960s, what we call liberalism, kind of libertarianism, conservatism and, uh, you know, pluralism, multiculturalism, all these things with uh, Christianity and, and more specifically with Catholicism. And so, you know, this this is where, uh, you know, we get our impression of what it is to be a conservative, right? So like you're this rabid economic libertarian, but you're also like rabidly anti-abortion, you know? So like even Ben Shapiro, in a way, he is, a, you know, uh, an Orthodox Jew, uh, but he's also like rabidly pro-life. And, you know, the, there isn't a huge strain of pro-life thought uh, in Judaism, really, Ju uh, being pro-life is not a seminal part of Jewish identity, uh, whether he knows it or not, right? Like Ben Shapiro and the rest of American conservatism, they basically inherited their anti-abortion stance from the injection of Catholicism into uh, American conservatism. And that um, was the same. Um, that was the same with the evangelicals. I mean, there yeah. was not that much. The chief opposing force against abortion when in the early 70s was the Catholic Church. The Southern Baptist uh, Convention had a statement on abortion, which was like a rat, which was like a centrist, like, well, you know, it happens, like whatever. And then the SBC has become one of the most radically pro-life uh, movements. I mean, without like the Southern Baptists and other um, conservative Protestants, you know, we would all have like third trimester, you know, like abortion, like would be more unlimited than it is today. There would be no pro-life movement at all. I mean, the pro-life movement depends primarily on evangelicals. I mean, when you see the chief abortion restrictions happening in America occur in deep Southern states where there are a few Catholics and a lot of those Catholics there are, are liberal Catholics. And it's primarily comes from evangelicals and and a lot of these left cats hate the hate this fusionism with evangelicals. Like evangelicals are are not our allies. Is they they're too libertarian or whatever. Yet without the you know conservative Protestant element, uh, the pro life movement would be uh, an insignificant force in American politics. Yes. in my opinion. And it, no, it, it would, and it's an interesting bit of revisionism because that is the history of it. But right now. Uh, ostensibly, yeah, pr Protestant America is the the face of, uh, you know, the pro-life movement and not not as an activist movement, but as, you know, the states where there are the most abortion restrictions. Well, they're the foot soldiers. The intellectuals yes. and the leaders are Catholic, but the Which foot is soldiers, kind of, by the way, that's kind of true of conservatism as a whole for- uh, yes, that's, that's also true. <laughs> that, that has been true. So what I was going to say, just to finish this kind of simple history, is that you have this- conservative Catholic alliance, this almost libertarian Catholic alliance. But as, as Scott and I were talking about, right, we were just talking about this, libertarianism has never been less popular, right? Like more and more millennials, like actual millennials, not made up millennials who are like, you know, 12 years old, like people in their, their, their mid twenties and, and mid thirties, uh, they have never been more cognizant of the failures of you know classical liberal libertarian anthropology the way they look at politics the way they look at economics right like and that's true of young right wingers that supported Donald Trump right they're not very uh they they're not libertarian ideologues by any stretch but it's also true of a lot of young leftists right like you see, like Dem uh, Bernie Sanders uh his supporters uh, a lot of them are young and they're very ideologically committed uh, to like democratic socialism. And they're very critical also of, you know, like the catch all term people use for it now is, is neoliberalism. And so in a lot of ways, the young Catholic world kind of got put into uh, a, a kind of a crisis, a minor crisis in that they are now caught having to react to essentially boomer conservatism 
as Catholicism. And so what you have is, a, a, in a way, a kind of signaling war where you need to demonstrate that you are a serious Catholic, right? Because we're, we, we're not talking about just flat liberal Catholicism, people who just have these like raging contradictions in their, between their politics and their faith, and they just refuse to, to acknowledge them as contradictions. What you have in this phenomena are people who are um, doctrinally orthodox, right? They, they, they are, they're pro-life, they are, you know, hush whisper, extremely anti-gay. Um, and, but at the same time, they are trying to build themselves in opposition to this Republican, conservative, libertarian, boomer branding that Catholicism allowed itself to be co-opted by, uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. And, you know, we all know, like, especially you mentioned that they are extremely online. One of the, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the corollaries of that is when you are extremely online, you have to engage in kind of hyperbolic signaling to distinguish exactly. yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where you get almost, you know, a lot of Catholics on the internet, they, you know, they identify themselves as not just socialist, but, you know, communist and things like that. And then there are these, you know, long, you know, rambling debates over whether we can salvage the term communism as like a not mass murdering version uh, or, you know, socialism. Can we salvage these terms? And so a lot of a lot of young Catholics, not not really a lot, but uh, a prominent Internet cohort have fallen into like that sphere of activity where they are desperate to prove that they are not like Gen X and boomer Catholics. They are not wedded to libertarianism. They are not wedded to libertarian economics. They, you know, understand that there is an idea of the common good. And so when it comes to someone like, you know, Bernie Sanders, who is this proud democratic socialist, and he's talking about, you know, taking care of people and the citizens, that's where you get like the Liz Brunig phenomena and a lot of people who are adjacent to her. That's where a lot of this comes from historically. And yeah, one part of the article that the examiner mentions is these guys, they're well aware that, uh, you know, Bernie is terrible on, on abortion rather. Uh, actually, they support his immigration <laughs> position. Uh, more on that yes, in a bit. They they're, they're aware that uh, he's terrible on abortion, but they're like, well, Trump is, is too. They're about the same, which is, uh, I mean, a, Kind of a ridiculous thought. I mean, the pro-life movement's pretty happy with Trump and his uh, actions uh, as president, but they just want to, it, it's a cope to say that they, to, you know, solidify their support or to justify their support for Bernie. They know that he's not an ideal candidate, but they're just going to overlook his abortion. And they really do believe they can win over the left uh, with their arguments. At the same time, the people that they're allying with, you know, DSA are radically pro-abortion, uh, they're, you know, they have zero so, uh, concern for social conservatism. And if you look, there was a lot of articles saying that AOC herself is is a sign that there's a growing left wing Catholic movement. But <laughs> I mean, she always talks about like, oh, I'm motivated by my faith, and yet she has zero social conservative views. I mean, she wants so birth control. So Buttigieg is also motivated by his faith. I believe, yeah, it's, right? it's the same way. It's it's the exact same <laughs> phenomenon. But they all fall for it because. There's this deep desire, uh, and there's a lot of conservatives share this too, because Ross Douthat uh, wrote about uh, these minor phenomena. I think in like 2017, uh, he wrote about the Tradinistas and uh, woke space Jesuit and all these people that like dunk on him all the time. Uh, but they all want to believe there's like a serious left-wing Catholic force out there, which there are a lot of liberal Catholics, but it's they're not. It's not based on theology or anything like that. They're just. Uh, ignore the rest of the faith's tenets. You know, they maybe go to church uh, twice a year or whatever like that. But, you know, they support birth control. They probably even support abortion, but they know it's wrong. Yet they yeah, they're more like the Nancy Pelosi, like the, the, the former group that we mentioned earlier. They're more like, you know, the Nancy Pelosi, JFK, like the, the, inherit, the inheritors of that kind of uh, And they're definitely not traditionalist Catholics. Like if they went to a Latin mass, they would walk out. They're like, what the hell is this? They would find it like something foreign and, and dangerous. And most people are going to Latin mass or conservatives. They're not um, interested yes. in socialism. Uh, so at this time, the, it, it is a fringe phenomenon that we give a lot of attention to because I think a lot of journalists want to believe that this is a real thing, that they want to believe that there's people going to Latin mass 
and then they're going out and helping immigrants and like the illegals and they're you know advocating for you know workers rights and everything like that um, and one of the defining features of left cats and even with some of these conservative catholics uh, is like in intense anti-racism and they decided that anything is racism like supporting orban is racist uh wanting a wall is racist uh saying you know thing wondering why hispanic immigrants are not speaking english is racist like there's all these things that they decide is racist and they do these kind of purity trials to find out who to root out the real racist and it's not anything to deal with like whether you're upholding theology like there can be somebody who is a proud lesbian and they're like yeah I, you know whatever I'm, I'm practicing that lifestyle that they'll forgive as long as they're an anti-racist but if you're like a devout catholic who believes in immigration restriction and likes orban and or anything like that they decide you're a racist because a lot of these people spend their whole time denouncing uh first things which is the uh most milquetoast publication ever as a neo-nazi rag and also, um, Rod Dreher is a crypto-Nazi. Yeah, Rod Dreher, they, they, <laughs> Rod Dreher, America's favorite middle-aged uh, travel <laughs> travel blogger, is a, actually a secret fascist. Um, he haunts their imaginations yeah, in an unbelievable way. And, like, these people are, the people they think are, like, racist fascists are, like, the most, like, biggest dorks. on. They're, like, so harmless. <laughs> but they, it, it's a desire that they have to separate themselves from them. And they're like, these are racist. We're not. Uh, we have one Hispanic guy we hang out with, and like, it's okay if you're like, you know, gay and you're sexually active, and you've had a, and you're probably don't believe that abortion should be banned. Like Liz Brunig, she does not believe abortion should be banned. Uh, that's okay as long as you're like anti-racist and support open borders. And but one of the interesting aspects of this is, not to interrupt, but uh, just when you brought up Liz Bruning, Liz Bruning is interesting in as much as she embodies exactly how this um, approach would fare in public exposed to a broader audience. And it's a, it's a colossal failure. Liz Bruning is hated by hardcore leftists. She is rejected by people who are in the DSA. She has no, no friends in, in this regard, but also people on the right, the older right, they don't like her either. Uh, she has no clever rhetorical out for her contradictory positions on abortion, on feminism, uh, you know, the Me Too movement, which she was a huge advocate for, things like that. She has no... Um, like insightful, brilliant third way out of these things. She just holds contradictory beliefs and gets mocked and called out for them all the time and has no response to it. And that's exactly how this would fare more broadly, uh, you know, with public exposure. And what her career is based on, well, one, they want somebody like that. And two, that there's all these uh, older men and journal and media and journalism who are essentially simps that they loved that they like these like oh look this is a nice intellectual girl she reads books just like me and so they'll elevate these people to you know positions that they probably shouldn't have like she's she's exactly my age and i mean she is like a more interesting writer than say uh, I don't know, Jennifer Rubin or the average person who's writing for Washington Post. Certainly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Chris Saliza or any of these other people. But at the same time, she's like somebody who's elevated due to this fact that they're like, there's this protective simp dad who, who run the media and they always kind of elevate these female journalists who they think are really smart and whatever. And they're like, Oh, ignore, anime ignore yeah. And they'll ignore their, you know, their bad arguments and how like, you know, maybe they didn't deserve that position so much, or there might be other people who are more worthy, but they'll elevate these people who have the, especially if they're female, who have to these prominent positions. And mm -hmm. so it also, there, there's kind of, one of her things is that journalists and people who are really extremely political and very tuned in want to believe that there's a left-wing Catholic phenomenon. And that's why they'll promote her up. And it's the same with, uh, Journo, older, you know, middle-aged male simps who elevate elevate female journos up to the top, uh, explaining her career. So that's, you know, um, 
it's going to be interesting to see what the future of Catholic politics in America is. I don't think a lot of the a lot of trads, whether they're right or left, believe that the ethnic enclaves are still around from like the 1950s and 60s and think that they represent like, you know, some working class Polish neighborhood that's, you know, economically socialist, but they they just want like, you know, they really care about pro-life views and everything. But that neighborhood really doesn't exist anymore. And a lot of these voters are more motivated by immigration and identity issues, not necessarily pro-life. I mean, they are pro-life, they do oppose abortion, uh, but they're not motivated to go to the polls by euthanasia or any of these type of issues that you know Catholic intellectuals care more about. I mean, Catholic intellectuals are very squeamish around immigration, even though there are people like First Things, which was initially founded because of you know new houses, opposition to paleoconservatives, support for immigration restriction, everything like that. And, you know, First Things was always an immigration booster magazine, and now it's publishing the Catholic case for Im immigration restriction. Um, so there are developments in that, but even those type, First Things types are still squeamish about immigration restriction, uh, even though this, and identity issues in general. Um, but these are the issues that motivate those uh, working class Catholic voters that they seek to represent. And there's, there's an interesting irony in what you just said. Now, I, I, let me just point this out quickly. Um, the the left cath phenomena exists in opposition to what they consider to be like the first things Richard John Newhouse brand of Catholicism. And yet, as you just pointed out, they essentially serve a very similar purpose overall, which is to present a face of Christianity that can police itself for anti-immigrant, quote unquote, racist sentiment, xenophobic sentiment uh, from within Christianity. This is something that I think is lost on a lot of them. Even people that have written pieces that have directly addressed first things, these people are, uh, I guess, they're, they're not aware of the fact that the people who they exist in opposition to are really a mirror image of them, ultimately. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, it's just a matter of style, I guess. I mean, the the old first things type would have been, you know, in a bow tie and, and you know, trying to emulate uh, G.K. Chesterton while the new person is trying to emulate the dirtbag left and looks kind of grimy and everything like that. And it's just a matter of, it's a, just a difference of style and tone. They're still calling everybody the same names though, all these decades later, which is, it, it's, a, it's a huge irony that I think is lost on a lot of people. Exactly. Well, now for our final topic that is completely different from everything else we've talked about. Uh, quarantine has got lefty women acting really funny. Writer Jill Filipovich, who may be the ultimate awful. And I have to say as an aside, she is so cringe. She's writing a book called OK Boomer, yet she is like 37 years old. This is once again, like anyone who's continuing to say OK Boomer right now is a millennial or Gen Xer engaging in cultural appropriation and trying to hide the fact that they are middle-aged themselves. And a lot of the... Uh, uh, animosity towards boomers really should be directed towards Gen Xers and people who are middle-aged. But that, enough digression, you know, just needed to say that about Filipovich. She, you know, a few days ago posted an insanely thirsty message about the Spanish Legion. That got leftists very angry because the Spanish Legion, besides not being a, a fan of shirt buttons, in the picture, these guys like pretty much have like shirts on, but there are no buttons, uh, you know, keeping the shirt together. Uh, the Legion is strongly associated with the Franco regime and was a key element in the nationalist forces during the Spanish Civil War. Many of its commanders were avowed phalangists. So leftists claim poor Jill was thirsting after fascists. Nightmare, is it the quarantine or something deeper that's got Filipovich and other awfuls acting funny? I've heard it say that every woman adores a fascist, and I, I never believed it myself. I think that's a disgusting sentiment. How how dare people uh, condone <laughs> such such reactionary <laughs> thinking? But I mean, in this case, it seems literally true that uh, yeah, she she seemed like um, 
she seemed like she was really eager to have these people policing her streets. Uh, yeah, she wanted, and she wanted them to like enforce an authoritarian lockdown. Like they're coming to the door and they're locking the door, and it's like, like yes, I want you to oppress me. <laughs> like there's a lot going on here. Uh, but a lot of these awfuls are, you know, affluent white female liberal for the listeners who uh, are not aware of the term. That's what awful refers to. Uh, they really are going crazy here. I mean, they're posting like drinking photos and there's all these, uh, you know, celebrities in the last episode I talked about, these celebrities are having these weird ass videos of them and, uh, you know, not really dealing with the quarantine well. So it'd be, it's understandable that people like Filipovich and others um, would be um, more brazen on Twitter. Um, I mean, Twitter has just got, Twitter is kind of be turning in more into a madhouse where people's, um, Secret desires and feuds and hatreds are just emerging under the quarantine, which is, I think, is why a lot of conservatives are also going crazy, is that they're beginning to see a side of themselves that they're scared of and they're wanting to get out of the home. You know, they're not, they're naturally extroverts and they're not intended to be introverts. Everyone's trapped in the same house together. And the, well, the other, you know, thinking about now that you've talked about uh, people praising or finding, uh, fascist forces sexy one of the things that i think got memory hold but i remember in 2016 you can do you could have done searches on twitter and you would have found a lot of awfuls who were admitting on twitter that they were having uncontrollable sex dreams about donald trump <laughs> yeah and i remember I that i never forget that because the public perception of trump was is and it still is today is he's this He's this over-the-top clownish buffoon. He's overweight. His tan, his his fake tan, his hair. He's disgusting. And yet, and yet, at the time, young and old awfuls alike were. I don't know why they were admitting this, but they were choosing to admit on Twitter that last night they had a sex dream about Donald Trump. So it. it it really goes much deeper than we think. And there's something going. There's something deeply wrong with awfuls that uh, requires. Uh, that's the real health emergency, I think, in America. Which uh, hopefully Trump addresses this. But you know that goes to a, on a similar note uh, to what you're explaining. Is the female host of the popular left wing podcast Red Scare said they found Steve Bannon dead sexy. <laughs> Uh, this is not a joke. They were literally talking about how much they, how hot they find Steve Bannon. Yes, that's Steve Bannon. The two hosts say he's dark and complex, and that makes him much hotter than Brad Pitt. However, they may have been partially joking, but still, this was a very weird segment they had for two minutes talking about how they love Steve Bannon, and they're like, he's so complex. There's just something to him, and it's I like that's way that. better than Brad Pitt. Um, can you, uh, can you explain this attraction for America's favorite boomer economic nationalist? I mean, unlike the I, Spanish Spanish Legion, he's putting multiple shirts, button-up shirts under, you know, a coat. Like, he'll have, like, four button-ups under his coat. Uh, this is a, the opposite of the Spanish Legion, which I doesn't have – that has nothing underneath their coat. I don't know, Scott, whether it's the hair or the alcoholism. But it's he's, not, he's not actually uh, fact check. He's uh, he is he is actually sober. I don't. I think. Oh, congratulations! Not, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, no, no. He's not an alcoholic. That's uh, people perceive that. I think he just has like you know bad skin condition and stuff. And he's like, I mean, he's Irish, so he's like naturally red faced and everything like <sighs> that. But no, he's not. He's uh, he's actually like a health nut. Uh, he doesn't drink at all. Um, I don't know if he, I think if he had ever gone through, if he had ever gone through a bout of alcoholism, he would have explained that. I mean, it's like Tucker, like Tucker is also doesn't drink at all either. Um, you know, there, there's a surprising amount of teetotalers. Uh, Trump doesn't drink either. Like What's all these powerful yeah, that's right. All that, all our that national, if, if you want to be a serious national populist, you got to be a teetotaler perhaps. But yes, uh, you know, sorry to interrupt you, but he's actually not. Uh, he doesn't drink alcohol. Then it has to be the hair. That's it. Either that or they're a fan of the War Room podcast. Yeah, the War Room pan for War Room pandemic now. Which, I mean, he's he's a he's a talented media commentator. He knows how to brand. Uh, he knows how to give you know explosive quotes to the media. Um, you know, he he is a fascinating figure. So we can. He's going to create bridges with the left before um, 
leftist Catholics. Uh, actually, he's a Catholic. So there he, is a, he is a Catholic, yeah. They're, they got what they wanted now. We finally found the face of the connection between leftists and Catholics. Uh, unfortunately for them, it turns out to be Steve, Stephen Bannon. Steve Bannon. Uh, face of left symbol, Steve Bannon. But, well, you know, that is a terrific note to conclude on is the thought of Steve Bannon on the cover of GQ as the hottest man in the world. But, you know, there's crazy things that could happen. Maybe, maybe someday that could happen. But, you know, that's all we've got for this week's podcast. Nightmare Vision, thank you for coming on. If you want to follow to him on Twitter, his handle is all one word. God, close my eyes, and please give him a follow if you get the chance. Um, some of the Boomer audience, some of the older members might not get his jokes and may wonder why I had this person on. But don't worry. It's it's all jokes. Um, he posts good content and good takes. But anyway, thank you, Nightmare, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Until next time, stay respected.